Shep was at the wheel. When wasn't Shep at the wheel? And the rest of the crew was packed into the extended cab alongside him. Delvin, Pensk, Scooter, and Bergy. They were driving down the dirt road called Crooked Neck, a place of some repute in West Virginia. Of course, these were all younger folks not prone to believe in them old wives' tales being handed down. And that was the whole reason they were here, so that Shep could give them a lesson. He went dark, rolling slow by the light of the moon. Y'all know about Earl Joe Hendershot, but y'all don't really know about him. The official story, that's just one version. It ain't the whole truth. Them cops and lawyers and bankers and such, they drove Earl Joe to do what he did. They just didn't know how far he'd go, making that hellfire and brimstone kill car and striking back where it really hurt. And then they killed him, which was when things really hit high gear. See, Earl Joe couldn't die. Him and that car were trapped on the neck on this little stretch of road right here. Some years back, all of us would be dead right now because Earl Joe didn't let anyone pass. Yeah, we heard all this stuff from Gascan, said Berkey. It's just kids' stories. Now that's where you're wrong, Missy, Shep said. He might be a crazy old coot. Gascan been around and around. Said he was there when old Lurlene beat the neck and put Earl Joe in the ground. Pinsk folded his arms and grumbled. Can't take the word of no Stokes. Maybe so, but I trust Gascan. He steered me right where I needed to go. Shep paused to scrape the Kodiak residue from his lower lip and then replace it with a fresh wad of sticky brown. Got a new friend out in these woods, he continued. Gas can introduced us. She'd been telling me stories, showing me things. Who are you talking about, Shep, said Scooter. You know darn well who I'm talking about. You also know we ain't supposed to say her name out aloud, especially not out here. Oh, hell no, Shep. That's witchcraft. Supposing it is. Oh, I just don't know about all that. Delvin, just because your mama left you at the church don't make you religious. Think it through. We keep talking about going to the next level. Well, friends, this is that next level. The end of the road came into view. The T intersection where the dirt road met pavement. The alleged burial site of the kill car. Shep turned on the high beams, illuminating the little scorched piece of tow line that peeked out through the cement. Earl Joe drove the baddest fucking car that ever was. So powerful, he could drive it right out of hell. And that's what I want. Earl Joe, he's the only one that can teach us. What are you saying, Shep? I'm saying, I think I know how we can bring him back. 
drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact. Tall tales and terrifying truths. This is A Scary Home Companion. Shep Sweetly first learned about cars and engines from his second stepdad, who had been a hard-drinking, belt-swinging so-and-so. But he was also an ace mechanic and wound up teaching Shep the fundamentals during his sober periods. Then he got turfed and replaced. Stepdad number three didn't give a shit about cars. So from that point on, Shep was self-taught. For once, the kid had a direction. Shep didn't care about school, nor church, or sports. And although he was fond of his sister Tweet, the rest of his family left him ice cold. Cars, that's what he had. Thankfully, there were a lot of good old boys and gearheads around Bedford who let him hang around their garages. That was where he first heard about Earl Joe and the kill car. As you might imagine, in a boy such as this, those stories really took root. Obsession is too strong a word, at least at first, but young Shep was definitely enchanted by the story. Both parts of the story, the real and the fake. Because it was real. Earl Joe Hendershot, from Bedford, really did custom-build a car and use it to fight back at the authorities. And he really did die in that car. But a lot of it had to be fake. Did Earl Joe come back as a ghost? Did he haunt the neck in his phantom kill car? Come on, now. Some years ago, when Shep was still too young to know anything about anything... A local girl named Lurleen Stokes claimed to have ended the legacy of the kill car. And there were no more Earl Joe sightings after that. But as more time went on and Shep heard more and more of these stories, both firsthand and otherwise, he came to see that there wasn't a fake part to the legend. It was all real. Then Shep got his official driver's permit. And at this point, it is fair to say he had graduated into obsession. His first legal day on the road, Shep visited all of Earl Joe's crash and kill sites. He cruised the length of the crooked neck several times over, trying to get a feel for it. There were a lot of wives' tales, not just about the road, but the forest and the holler. And now he was coming to see that some of them might be true, or at least based on something that was true. They said that an old witch lived deep in the woods, never leaving her house. She was called Old Leather Stocking, and she used cat gut to make strings for the devil's fiddle. When the town of Bedford wanted to build the road, they allegedly had to find the witch and bring her gifts in order to gain her permission. Shep had never put stock in any of that hogwash. 
But now he was here, and the road seemed to have a weird energy to it. Maybe he needed to be more open-minded. He started going back there often, and found that he wasn't the only one. The Crooked Neck had acquired a reputation, and people came in from all over, some just to see it, but others wanted to race it. Shep didn't race. He wasn't into cars that way. He wanted to build them and drive them and make them better, but competing? That wasn't his race in Detra. But he did watch the others race. And the first time he saw an accident in person, his heart started a-thumping. No one died that night. But it didn't take too long before Shep witnessed a fatality on Crooked Neck. A few months after that, he caused one himself. Not with any malice of forethought, as they say, more like accidentally on purpose. He saw the old-timer swerving a little as they approached one another on the two-lane. He also saw that the man wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So Shep let himself swerve a little, too. The collision killed the old-timer put him right through the windshield. Shep walked away with a broken wrist and a new outlook on life. He'd gotten a taste of something, a thrill he never knew existed. What he did know was going around inciting car wrecks was not how he wanted to live his life. Nah, he needed more. He needed to take a page from the history books, to build his own kill car. He needed to feel the sense of power that would come with that. At this point, Shep was 18, long since dropped out of school and working a series of menial garage jobs. For his private workspace, Shep rented a small garage from a local drunk named Gas Can Hawkins. Gas Can was a big talker from way back, claimed to have known Earl Joe on a personal level before the unpleasantness. He was a colorful cat. More importantly, he rented garage space cheap. Once Gas Can saw what Shep was building, his tongue was loosed. He started talking, saying things that he wouldn't ever say in public no matter how much moonshine he had in him. He told the stories about Earl Joe that nobody else knew. Shep worked a lot, and he spent all of his earnings at the scrapyard and the hardware store. He usually slept in the garage and only went home for meals every once in a while, and to check on Tweet. What he didn't do was talk about his project. Yet, a few folks started hanging around nonetheless either intrigued by the mystery or drawn by something darker. Hard to say. Shep sure as shit didn't know, but after a while, Delvin, Scooter, Pinsk, and Bergy all became regular fixtures at his garage. They all loved cars. They all enjoyed the rawness of it, the grease and the steel and the scraped knuckles and the busted blisters that came with being a mechanic. 
and yet they all were missing something. Shep was able to address that to some measure. He started to share the old stories, although there were a few that he held close to the vest. Gascan had told him about how Earl Joe managed to come back after death. It was that witch in the crooked holler, old leather stocking. It took some convincing, some bribing, and a little threatening. But finally, Shep got Gascan to point him in the right direction. The older man steered him down the right path, deep into the thicket and up the rise, where Shep found the ramshackle cabin just as Gascan had described it. Weathered and worn, a busted-out roof replaced with thatched branches and brown leaves. No power, no phone, no water. Just a soggy half-an-outhouse down the hill of Mosey, and a porch out front. Small, screened-in, containing the flickering box of a black-and-white TV and a sitting chart. A shriveled old woman in a faded house dress sat in that jar, leaning back, sucking on the end of a Virginia Slim like it was a nipple. She had home-cut hair, sticky and matted, the same tombstone gray color as her teeth. The static hiss from the screen washed over her, giving her a foxfire glow. Well then, y'all gawkin' or you got something to say, she said to him, her voice surprisingly deep and powerful. Shep shuffled up to the screen door. She peered at him, forehead wrinkles running deep. Who's that then? Uh, Shep Sweetly, ma'am. You kin to Chester Sweetly? So I'm told. He's a son of a bitch holy roller. I've been told that too. Never met him. Why are you on my doorstep, Shep Sweetly? I was, well, spit it out, boy. My stories are on. He glanced at the TV screen, but couldn't make heads or tails out of what was on it. It wasn't any show he'd ever seen. I was asking some questions to Gascan, and he said you was the only one could answer them proper like. He tell you what to bring me? Shep held up the plastic bag from the shopping safe. All right, then, come in. There wasn't another chair, so Shep handed her the bag and took a couple steps back as she rifled through it. Cheese puffs, Virginia Slims, beef stick, beer... Okay, not bad, Shep Sweetly. A little thin, but you seem like a respectful boy. We like that. You can go now. But I thought, ain't matter what you thought, you came here to make friends, right? And you done good. We're friends now. Come back any old time. Just not when my stories are on. And Shep... When you come back, bring some shine and some formaldehyde. I dip my slims in them, 
gives him a sizzle. I don't know how to get that. You'll figure it out if you want them questions answered bad enough. As he left, the trees seemed to part and the path out of the holler was clear. After that, Shep came back often. He was less interested in finishing his own kill car and much more interested with what he could learn from the old woman. She had such wisdom. Shep always brought gifts. He even found a way to get her formaldehyde. The next time, she wanted a lock of hair from the prettiest girl in town. So Shep cut a chunk off of tweet while she was sleeping. Next time, she asked for the keys from a dead man's pocket. And she explained that the longer this went on, the more exotic the gifts would need to be. In return for his offerings, the woman told him of Earl Joe and of the gifts he had brought her. She taught Shep about the power of sacrifice, the existence of unholy bargains, and the obsolescence of old rituals. Real power came in making your own rituals, using the strength of conviction to jumpstart something bigger than any of us. This was grassroots occultism at its most raw. Shep became fixated on this idea, and it took on a life all its own. Gas and blood, oil and bile, steel and bones, mirrors and eyes, tires and limbs, machine and man, dead and alive. All of this would be his. For his part, the sheriff of Bedford, West Virginia, and the head honcho for law enforcement in the area of Crooked Neck, he knew that Shep Sweetly was up to something sideways. He just didn't know what or how sideways. He used to think that Shep wasn't a bad kid, but the last few months he had been throwing up red flag after red flag. Sheriff Tom Kendo Jr., He knew all about red flags, about reading the signs and stepping in before it was too late. It was a lesson he had learned the hard way, costing him two of his best friends and almost his own life. That had been back 30-some years roundabout, but Tom was still haunted by what Nick Braithwaite did that fateful night. So he kept an eye on Shep, just in case. So far, the kid was just a little off, a little creepy, weird maybe, but only possibly dangerous. That accident he'd been in had shaken up Shep, and that might have been for the best. 
Recently, Shep had been asking a bunch of jackassy questions about Earl Joe. But that wasn't illegal. Oh, and yeah, there was that new kill car, still on the rack in the garage. Tom heard about that, too. So he broke into Gascan's place one night to take a look for his own self. The work was impressive. The vehicle looked deadly, lined with spikes and split saw blades, just like the old stories. On the other hand, it was at least six months out from being mobile. Even for a crew of dedicated gearheads, a a rebuild like this was an epic chore. And this rattle trap wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. That said, Tom still went back periodically to check on the progress. And this wasn't the first time that Tom's job was complicated by Earl Joe-related mischief. Even being dead for so damn long, he was still a trouble magnet. Tom had managed to keep most of the outsiders from coming in and racing on the crooked neck these days. Several folks had died. Others came damn fool close to it. So the law had no choice but to shut it down. Chains, fences, and warning signs, those only worked on the city folk. Anyone from around the holler knew a dozen different back ways to get onto the crooked neck which is one of the reasons Tom cruised the length of the road every time he was on duty. And hell, even sometimes when he wasn't. He would slowly tour the neck, eyes and ears wide open, and he always ended with the gravesite. He could still see the letters etched into the surface with a fingertip, Here lies Earl Joe Hendershot, former champion of Crooked Neck, and one sorry son of a bitch. Recently, Tom had been driving the Neck more often. He'd caught signs of increased activity on the road, and he was sure that it was Shep and his ragtag crew. When Tom Kendo first moved to the holler, so many years ago, it was to be closer to his mother's family. It was also to get a fresh start in a new place, shedding the trauma and the reputation of the past. This is also where he decided to start taking after his father. Tom Kendo Sr. was a veteran lawman with a reputation for being a decent Christian and a steward of the community. After staring down death, Junior realized that might be a noble path, one he'd like to try and walk himself. And now, all these years later, here he was, sheriff, trying to keep the peace, protect and serve, and stay watchful for old world hoodoo from the crooked forest. It wasn't lost on Tom that he was the first openly gay lawman Bedford had ever seen. A few of the locals claimed he was the first gay man they'd ever met. And Tom was polite enough to never correct them. 
he had come a long way from being a great. But he still rocked that mullet. Longer and more luxurious than ever. He just kept it tailed and tucked under his collar whenever he was on duty. And he still lifted, too. He had a weight bench at home, one at the station, and he kept a set of hand weights in the truck for when he had idle time. He was sitting near Earl Joe's grave when he got a call. It was Gas Can Hawkins, jabbering drunk, crying, causing a public nuisance. Again. Tom sighed and headed back into town. When he was gone, the other cars emerged, five of them pulling out of their hiding spots beside Crooked Neck. They parked in a circle around the grave, high beams concentrated on the epicenter. Tom found Gas Can in the alley behind the shopping safe. In his attempt to crawl into a dumpster, Gas Can had gotten his belt hooked on a piece of metal and was now hanging upside down, wiggling and making a devil of a racket. I'm sorry, Sheriff, he said, and then he vomited all over himself. I shouldn't have done what I'd done. I, I didn't think it would lead to nothing like this. It's no bother, Gas Can. You can ride in the back. Tom helped the drunk down to the ground and then up to his feet and into the bed of the truck. As Tom was tucking in Gas Can to sleep it off in the drunk tank, he got another call. Busy night for Bedford. But it wasn't a citizen. It was a state trooper out of Buckhannon that Tom was friendly with. Evening, Sheriff. How you doing, Ben? Just fine, just fine. Every day above ground, you know what I mean? Listen, I'm making a few calls, seeing if anyone knows anything, because this case is a weird one. I'm at loose ends. Help you if I can, Ben. We had a robbery of sorts. I don't even know you can call it that. Some boys in ski masks hijacked the bloodmobile and took her for a joyride. That's odd. Yep. They abandoned it a few miles later. Here's the kicker. They took the blood. The blood? Yep. Over three gallons. That seems like a lot of blood. You know anyone might be good for this brand of malfeasance? Satanists or whatnot. Ben, let me make a couple of calls and knock on a couple of doors. I'll call you back in the morning one way or the other. He signed off, with the pleading apology of Gas Can sounding a little different now in his head. He went to the cell and roused the freshly sleeping drunk. Hey, is Shep up to something? I told you I was sorry, Sheriff. Tom opened the cell door and gave the man a slap. What's he doing? I don't know. I don't know. He's all fired up about Earl Joe. I, I told him how to find the holler witch. 
and he sort of ran with it, afraid to say. Stealing that blood? That's low. And I'm sorry. I, I never meant that to happen. Sick kids need that blood. Tom Kendo locked the cell and headed back to Crooked Neck. According to Old Leatherstocking, Shep had to write his own future and create his own ritual. Although he wasn't the most creative guy in the world, Shep had a few ideas, and he was feeling good about tonight. All five of them brought their own cars, and everyone had something to offer. They parked in a circle, 20 feet around the burial site and lit it up bright as day. Then they got to work, under the watchful eye of Shep. Delvin went first, using a half gallon of engine oil to trace a circle around the grave. Pinsk was next, a slightly larger circle of transmission fluid. Then Bergy with a circle of all-weather coolant, and Scooter, the final circle of brake fluid. The circles weren't perfect, some wobbly lines here and there, but they were complete in an endless loop, with none touching the other. We gotta offer Earl Joe everything he needs, everything the kill car needs, Shep said. He carried a heavy drum into the middle, careful not to step and disrupt any of the lines. Here's what I think he needs. I'm giving you this to drink. You listening, Earl Joe? Or whatever damn foul thing you answer to? This is my offering. Hear me. Shep tipped over the drum, releasing the contents onto the road. A mixture of three gallons of gasoline and three gallons of human blood. The grisly fuel spilled out across the cement, across the grave. And curiously, it stopped dead at the edge of the innermost circle. It should have kept spreading, and yet it was completely contained. The surface shimmered gold and garnet. Shep stood at the edge of the outermost circle, waiting. The others fanned out behind him. They were starting to get nervous. What if it... Scooter started to say, but Shep cut him off. Ain't no if-its. It happens or it don't. Just give it a minute. Let it seep down into the car. Give her old Joe a little wake-me-up. Come on, old boy. They said you was the meanest some bitch ever burned rubber. Why don't you come back and show us how it's done? There was nothing. Except the distant sound of an approaching engine. Fine, then. Guess the stories were all bunk. We don't need you any damn how. Our kill car will make everyone forget about you. So stay dead, you fucking pussy.
in the middle of the puddle of gasoline, a tiny blue flame, just a few inches high, as tight and swirly as a dust devil. Everyone backed away, edging towards their cars. Except Ship, he stood firm. The flame grew, getting taller, wider. The tiny flame expanded, getting taller, wider, growing orange edges as it spread through the air and across the ground. In the center of it, something was looking back at Shep. Dark cat-like eyes over a grinning mouth full of pearly whites. Not Earl Joe. Not the witch. Not even human. It stared at Shep, and he could feel what it wanted. He had to say it. He had to ask. Send Earl Joe Hendershot back to Crooked Neck to teach me. Please. The flames crackled, twisted, and surged as the face laughed. You got it, baby. The fire leaned out over the edge of the inner circle, but never spilled across it. It was still contained. The face was gone. But there was something else. The low rumble of a diesel engine buried ten feet deep, growling, surging. A fresh set of headlights washed over Shep, cutting through the flames as the sheriff pulled up in his truck. He parked some fifty, sixty feet out because he knew the tales and what the rules were supposed to be. But no one had prepared Tom Kendo for what he was about to witness. Too late, Sheriff. Shep threw up a one-finger salute. I'll see you on the neck, bitch. And then the earth cracked. The concentric circles split down the middle, and the kill car erupted through the fire, plunging directly into Shep before skidding to a halt, drenched in hellfire, cloaked in an exhaust cloud of brimstone. The engine revved. Blood and fuel dripped from the tips of the spikes and the glistening edges of the saw blades. The cow catcher was packed with fresh meat. Much of Shep was lodged in it. His legs dragged beneath the front bumper. Parts of him fell away as the kill car spun 180 and threw donuts around the mouth of the crooked neck. Where the other four gearheads were scrambling towards their vehicles. Delvin got pinned against the side of his own truck, ripped bloody bits by the saw blades even as his torso was crushed. Pinsk got clipped by the edge of the cow catcher and landed in a heap on the dirt. Scooter 
managed to get his car running. But then Earl Joe T-boned him and sent his limp body sailing through the passenger window. Bergie dropped her keys and ran into the thicket where the trees were too close together for the kill car to follow. Instead, it idled in a lazy circle back to Pinsk, who was still coughing blood and bemoaning his shattered legs. Earl Joe got his rear tire in just the right spot, then slammed gas and spun out on his screaming skull. All the while, Tom Kendo Jr. sat in his truck and watched on, helpless. Earl Joe was bound to the crooked neck. He couldn't come out onto the main road, not even 50 feet. The two cars sat, staring at one another over that short distance. And then the murder machine spun around and raced into the darkness of the holler throwing rooster tails of blood and flesh. After a few minutes, Tom fished the phone out of his pocket. Hi, Aunt Ruthie. Yeah, I know it's late. This is important. I need to get a hold of my baby cousin. Yes, tonight. Yes. I know she's out of the country. I need to reach her. You have to have a number. Please. Okay, thank you. Tom didn't want it to come to this, but the situation was now firmly out of hand, and Tom Kendo was completely out of his depth. He needed help from his kinfolk, specifically the one person that knew how to put Earl Joe back in the ground, Lurlene Stokes. For listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. Find the show on social media. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and join the Reddit page. Or email us directly at a scary home companion at gmail.com. But before that, for goodness sakes, if you haven't listened to the classic episode Hellbound and Down, the birthplace of the kill car. Go and do so now. And if you have heard it, maybe it's time to check it out again. West Virginia is only going to get crazier from here. Although her name was evoked at the end, we didn't actually get to see Lurleen Stokes this time around. And the reason for that is found on Patreon, where the reigning champion of the crooked neck is south of the border kicking up some fuss. She has a maybe girlfriend and a feud with a murderous mariachi named El Horrible. This and 30 more exclusive episodes are available only on Patreon. For five bucks a month, you can't go wrong. Music this episode came from Beat Mechanic with Harley Davidson and Long Way Home. Devil Music with Transformation, and Lobo Loco with Man in the River 
and Riverside Blues. And sick kids need that blood. <laughs> Fuck sakes, boys. <laughs> It kills me that blood. <laughs> oh, my boy. <laughs>